All right, if you would please turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning in our study of the book of Revelation. Um, I, have a, I have a hobby, and I don't, know, I don't know if it's a strange hobby. I don't know if other people have the same hobby, but uh, I like to wander through construction sites. And, you know, I mean, if I see a new building that's going up or a house or whatever, I mean, I'll just pull over to the side of the road and I'll start walking through. And if it's night, I just bring a flashlight. And, you know, I mean, I don't know if that's kind of creepy or what, but I, just, I love the entire process of a building coming out of the ground and being constructed. And so about, uh, it was actually like about 20 years ago, we, Tristan and I drew up some plans for the house we live in now and we gave it to a builder. And I went out to our construction site every day. And when I say every day, I'm not exaggerating. Like, I went out every single day. Sometimes I'd go out multiple times a day just to check on the progress. And obviously, at times, I was really frustrated because no one was out there working. And so I just kind of keep checking on them. And is anything going to happen? And I, I was there when the foundation was laid. And then I was there when they framed the house and put on the roof. And they strung all of the electrical and the AC and put up the sheetrock and painted. I mean, I was there for every single stage of the construction of our home. And as we got closer to the end, it just seemed to drag on forever. I'm like, okay, when are we going to get to move into our house? When are we going to get to move into our house? When are we finally going to get the keys and move into our house? And I wonder if sometimes you're feeling that about our study of the book of Revelation, right? Are we finally going to get there? Well, we're getting there. Uh, we're going to kind of move into our house today, right? We're at the very end of our study of Revelation. And in a sense, you could look at the book of Revelation as this, this massive remodeling project that the Lord is going to do. Uh, he's going to remodel uh, the entire universe and reshape it as he had originally intended it. And what he has to do first is he has to clean out the old. He's got to remove a lot. And that's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks as God has stepped in and he's judged sin. And a few weeks ago we saw that he, he removed Babylon this city that represents uh, a whole culture that is set against God, uh, spiritually, physically, socially, economically, religiously, it's turned against God, and he removes all, he removes all the remnants of Babylon, and the, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, and now we're coming to the end, but there are a few loose ends, right? There's a punch list that's got to be completed, specifically uh, Satan has to be removed from our new home and death itself because they have no place in our future and where we're going to dwell in the presence of God. And so we're given this book of uh, Revelation for a couple reasons. One is for our comfort so that when we, we've got days where we're really struggling, life is frustrating and, and it's just it's thorns and thistles in our job, in our family, in our physical uh, being that we remember uh, this is not the end of the story. God's best is yet to come. Uh, frequently, I'm, I'm, I, when I do funerals, I hear people say, well, uh, he's going to a better place. She's going to a better place. I go, no, 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 no. She's going to the place. It's not just better. It's the best. This is what God has designed. And so when we're in the midst of life on this earth that's frustrating, we can remember and be comforted. The best is yet to come. And the best will last forever, and this life that's frustrating is only for a moment. But second, it gives us this sense of urgency. Because when Jesus establishes the kingdom of God on earth, one of the prophets said, 
from the words of the Lord, yet once more I will shake the heavens and the earth. The image being that anything that is not attached to the kingdom of God is going to fly off. That is, only a few things really matter in life, and if we don't invest our lives in what really matters now, we will discover that we have wasted our lives. And so it gives us a sense of urgency right now that we would live today for that day. So what we're going to look at uh, this morning and next week is we're going to look at that day. So this is the course of our study. When Jesus returns, he will fulfill all of God's promises. He will defeat all of God's enemies. And then next week, he will restore all things forever. So Revelation chapter 20, if you're not there already, turn there. Revelation chapter 20, and I want you to begin by reading with me the first three verses. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time period of time. So the beginning of the end starts with the binding of Satan. God releases an angel who comes down with a chain and he binds Satan and throws him into the abyss. He doesn't throw him into hell or the lake of fire. That's, that's a permanent place. When you go into that place, you don't come out again. He throws him instead into the abyss, which apparently is a section of Hades, or in the Old Testament described as Sheol. That's not the same as the lake of fire or hell, and we'll come back to that idea in just a minute. But what you notice is he's bound, and he's bound for a thousand years, and during that thousand years, Jesus Christ begins his rule and his reign upon the earth. So this is where we are in our course of study. We believe that we are now in the church age, began on the day of Pentecost, and continues into this age. Uh, the end of the church age will come with the rapture of the church. First Thess- Thessalonians chapter 4, we're told that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be in the presence of the Lord. And shortly after that time, we believe we'll begin the tribulation period. Tribulation period is that 70th, seven-year period that Daniel spoke of in Daniel chapter 9. It lasts for seven years. It begins with the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel. He promises them, them that they can be restored to the land and that they can once again worship in Jerusalem. Halfway through that seven-year period, he breaks his covenant with them. They realize he is not their Messiah. He's the anti-Messiah. He's the false Christ. And they begin to realize that Jesus was their Christ and they missed him. And it says in Zechariah, they begin to look on him whom they have pierced and they mourn for him as one longs for an only son. And there's a revival that begins in Israel. And so throughout this tribulation period, God is using this time to draw Israel back to himself so that he can fulfill his covenant promises. He's also judging sin and he's also proclaiming the gospel broadly. So some are rejecting God and they're following the kingdom of the Antichrist. Some are turning to Jesus as the true Messiah. Those who turn to Jesus as the true Messiah are being persecuted, they're suffering, many lose their lives. But some endure all the way through the end of that tribulation period and the tribulation period ends, the 70th, seven week period ends with the return of Jesus with his saints to the earth. Revelation 
chapter 19, the second coming. And at the second coming, God, through Jesus, judges his enemies and he binds Satan for a thousand years and that begins the thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. Now read with me chapter 20, verse four. John writes, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So Jesus comes to earth. He begins his millennial reign for a thousand years. The question is, is it really literally a thousand years? And there's a lot of debate among Christians as to whether or not this is actually a thousand years. And what it boils down to is this. Do you, do you believe that Israel, because of their disobedience, forfeited their promises, their covenant promises, and they were transferred to the church in a spiritual form, or in spite of Israel's disobedience, do those promises still remain that God must fulfill to the nation of Israel? So there are three basic ways of understanding the millennial kingdom. The first is this, amillennial, meaning there is not a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. If you have friends who are Presbyterian, most of them will ascribe to this. Not all of them, but most of them will ascribe to an amillennial interpretation of Revelation chapter 20. It's described like this. I would describe it like this. The church has replaced the nation of Israel so that God's promises are being fulfilled spiritually rather than literally. The thousand-year kingdom of Revelation 20 is figurative. That is, God's kingdom is happening right now either through the church on earth or through Christ's reign from heaven or both. That is, it's not a literal earthly reign. The promises have now been transferred to the church and they're being fulfilled spiritually in the life of the church or in Jesus' reign from heaven through the life of the church. That's an amillennial position. There's not a literal millennial reign. Second position is this post-millennial. Jesus will return to the earth, but he'll return to the earth after the end of the millennial kingdom. So post-millennialism believes this. The church will gradually build the kingdom of God on earth by sharing the gospel and doing good works. The world will increasingly come to follow Jesus. Conditions will get better and better, and then Jesus will return. In other words, our role as a church, in a sense, is to Christianize the world. And as we're sharing the gospel and we're doing good work, the, the world's gonna get better and better and better and better, and the conditions will finally become right for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom. That's post-millennialism. Uh, my position, position of Grace Bible Church, is we are pre-millennial. We believe that there is a return of Jesus to the earth before the millennium, and then he will rule and reign literally on earth for a thousand years. So the millennial, or thousand-year kingdom of God, is literal, earthly, and still to come. It is a fulfillment of God's covenant promises to the nation of Israel and through Israel to all the peoples of the world. So fundamentally, the issue is this. Did Israel forfeit their promises or will the promises still be fulfilled? If the promises are going to be fulfilled to Israel, then all our understanding of eschatology or end times is framed by the biblical 
covenant. So I want to walk you back through uh, three of the promise covenants quickly this morning. And the first is the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 3 is the first announcement of the Abrahamic covenant. God is speaking to Abraham, and he said, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, why did God give a covenant to Abraham? Because the earth was under a curse. Genesis chapters one and two, God made our home perfect for us. He made it for us. For us to live in harmony with him, with one another, and with all of creation. But then sin entered in, we see in Genesis chapter 3, not only did, were we affected by the curse, but all of creation was affected by the curse. So as Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, all of creation groans. This is a, it's a frustrating existence. It's an existence that's, that's marked by, by alienation, by separation. Relationships just don't work right. Our relationships with one another, our relationship with God, our relationship with creation, with our jobs, with our friends, with our family, everything is broken. That is, it's under the curse. And so we're not experiencing all that God has designed for us. So what is the, the program of the Bible? The narrative of the Bible is that God is going to, he's going he's to fix things. He's going to restore us so that we can once again live in harmony with him and in harmony with one another and in harmony with all of creation. That's God's kingdom program. And the first step in that restoration process that we see is him making a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm gonna not only bless you, but I'm gonna bring blessing, that is the reversal of the curse, to every tribe and tongue and people and nation through you. When I fulfill my covenant promises, to you, they will extend through you to all peoples. So I'm going to give you a seed, or I'm going to give you descendants. And it is through your descendants. And from this place, this promised land, whose dimensions are nearly identical to the land of Eden, from this place, I will extend blessings. I, that is, I will reverse the curse for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Abraham, it's going to happen not just for you, but it's going to happen from you and through you to all nations. Second promise, covenant, it's a promise given to David about a thousand years later. The Lord is speaking to David, and he said, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That is David. From you will come the seed of Abraham, who will establish a kingdom. And from this place, from Jerusalem, over the promised land, extending to every tribe and tongue and people and nations, there will be a kingdom that will reverse the curse and bring blessings to all people. David, I promise it's going to happen forever. The question is, did Israel's disobedience cause them to forfeit these promises? Because remember, after David, uh, there were not a lot of good kings. In fact, there were only a few good kings. You read the books of Kings and Chronicles, man, it just gets worse and worse and worse within uh, you know, a, a single generation. Solomon uh, 
He wrote books of the Bible, but he didn't walk with God a lot of his life. And then uh, after him, he had a son, Rehoboam, who split the kingdom. And then it was the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And there were no, no good kings in the northern tribes, just a few in the southern tribes. And then the northern kingdoms, the northern tribes were taken away into exile by the Assyrians. The southern tribes were taken away into exile by the Babylonians. And, and, and they, they lived under the curse. So the question is, because they did not walk obediently with God, did they forfeit the covenant promises? I want you to turn with me, hold your, mark your spot here in Revelation 20, but then turn to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, you should probably just fold that page down in your Bible. Okay, this is a, an enormously significant chapter describing uh, the new covenant. Okay, the new covenant promises. So we have three promised covenants, Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, I want you to read with me in verse 31. The Lord says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That's a reference to the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant wasn't a promised covenant, it was a conditional covenant. If you obey, then you'll be blessed. If you disobey, then you'll be cursed. And Israel didn't obey. And as a result, they experienced God's discipline ultimately removing them from the land. And there was a problem with the Mosaic Covenant as a conditional covenant. And the problem was the heart of man. There was nothing in the Mosaic Covenant that empowered God's people to obey them. They tried and they failed and they tried and they failed and then they failed and they failed and they stopped trying and then they were removed from the land. And having been removed from the land, the question is, will God actually still keep his promises to Abraham and to David? And what God does for his people while they are in exile, right? So right in the margin of chapter 31 of Jeremiah, in exile, they are in exile, they are under discipline because of their disobedience. God comes to them and he says, you know what? I'm gonna make you a new promise. I see all of your sin, I see all of your failure. In fact, you're under discipline for your failure right now and I'm gonna make you a new covenant. I'm gonna make you a better covenant. What this covenant is gonna do, is it's gonna empower you to walk in obedience so I can pour out my blessings on you. Read with me verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So what is the prophet saying? What is the Lord saying through the prophet? Can you measure the heavens? You cannot. 
Can you search out the depths of the earth? You cannot. If you could, then maybe I'd think about breaking my promise, but you can't, so I won't. Which gives us assurance that if God makes a promise to us, he will keep it. God never breaks his word. So what did God do? Well, God restored Israel. He brought them back from exile and he planted them again in the land, but they were living under Roman oppression. They were not free. They were a nation, but they were not governing themselves. They weren't free. They needed that new covenant to come. They needed a better covenant to come. And so God sent his son, Luke chapter one. The angel spoke to Mary and he said, he will be great, that is your son. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom will have no end. I would encourage you during the Christmas break to read the genealogies in Matthew and Luke because they're really, really important. And what they tell you is this. Jesus Christ came from the seed of Abraham and he came through the line of David. He is the one who fulfills the promises that were given to Abraham and the promises were given to David. And so Mary is told, this is who your son will be. He will be the son of the most high. That is, he will be God's king on earth and he will establish God's throne over all of the earth. He will fulfill all of God's kingdom promises. He is the Messiah. And so Jesus grew up and he began to preach and, and he said, here I am. The kingdom of God is, is among you and what did Israel do? He said, ah, we don't really want a king like that. And so they rejected him and they crucified him. And so we're back to the question again. Well, if Israel now once again has walked in disobedience and they actually rejected the Messiah that God had sent to them, do those promises and the covenants made to them, do they transfer to a better people? Do they transfer to us, to the church, or will they still be fulfilled through Israel and for Israel to the nations? Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 24. Now, there are multiple uh, metaphors that are used throughout the Bible to describe Israel, it's just, Israel's uh, described as a vine, it's the sheep uh, of God, they're the bride of God, they're also uh, talked about as an olive tree. Israel's an olive tree, and the root of the olive tree, the Abrahamic promises, right? The Abrahamic covenant promises, that's the root of the olive tree. And so the olive tree is the nation of Israel, right? Ethnic Israel, and everyone who believes, who right, is, is ethnically related to Abraham, but also believes, remains a part of that tree. And those who disbelieve, even if they're ethnically related to Abraham, but if they disbelieve, they're, they're cut off, they're removed. Because you can't just be ethnically related to Abraham to receive the promises. You also have to believe in the God who gives the promises. So Paul picks up this metaphor, Romans chapter 11 and verse 24. And Paul is speaking now to Roman, that is non-Jewish Christians or Gentiles, and he says, if you, non-Jewish Christians, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? That is, you, you, you came from a non-Jewish people, but you were grafted into the promises made to Abraham. So if there are Jews right now who are disbelieving, can they not also believe and be grafted back into their own covenant promises? Verse 25, for I not, do not want you to be, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, 
so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul's saying, look, right now you see the Jewish people hard to the gospel. Well, God has allowed that hardening so that he can turn his grace to every tribe and tongue and people and nation and bring them in. But when God is done bringing in all of the tribes and tongues and people and nations, you know what he's gonna do? He's gonna turn back to his people Israel and he's gonna draw them back into the olive tree, into those covenant promises. Verse 26, so when the fullness of the, the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What is that? That's new covenant promises. What he's saying is when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, there's going to be a massive revival among Jews, among the nation of Israel. When does that occur? We just studied it during the tribulation period. And they look on him whom they have pierced and they mourn for him and they realize that he is their Messiah. And God begins, begins to bring them back so that he can fulfill his covenant promises to them. New covenant promises. From the standpoint of the gospel right now, they're enemies for your sake because they've re rejected the gospel and they're persecuting you. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, that is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones to whom the covenant promises were given because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What's he talking about? Covenant promises. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God does not go back on his covenant promises. So the millennial reign of Jesus Christ is the same as the Davidic kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. Testament, and it will be literally fulfilled. So six times in six verses in Revelation chapter 20, it says a thousand years, 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 a thousand years. There will be a literal a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ on earth, just as there was a literal seven year tribulation period, just as Daniel's first 69 weeks were fulfilled literally, there will be a literal return of Jesus to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. Now, what we're talking about here is, uh, we're talking about the kingdom of God. Okay. Um, I want you to just settle in because I'm going to go long today, okay? Um, I'm just preparing you. I, I've, I've cut a lot of stuff, not just today, but all semester long, and so I'm just going to exercise my freedom, so just settle in. <laughs> um, my... Uh, my dad is a really uh, interesting guy. When he lays hold of an idea, man, he just, he just studies and digs, and he, he just, he's a learner. He's a thinker. And uh, a few months ago, he stumbled on a book, a three-volume set from the 1800s on the kingdom of God, right? Thousands of pages written about the kingdom of God. And so my dad's working his way through this three-volume set. He's, he's uh, two volumes through, and um, every time my dad uh, calls me, we get on the phone, he says, let me tell you what I've learned about the kingdom of God. And so we have these conversations, which is just so amazing that my dad, you know, just wants to learn about the kingdom of God. My mom also is a student of the Bible. Like, she'll, she'll call me and we'll, we'll talk about these texts that she's studying. What does this mean and how do we translate it right? But uh, my mom has her limits in terms of her conversations about the kingdom of God. So sometimes she'll say, hey, would you call your dad and talk to him about the kingdom of God? Because, I, you know, I, I just can't. So we're diving into this. So I want to talk to you, since I've been discussing this with my dad for a while, the kingdom of God, because it's, it's probably one of the most expansive uh, themes, maybe the most expansive theme in the entire Bible. Um, 
And what the kingdom of God means, in a sense, is expressed in, in different ways throughout Scripture. What it means, generally speaking, is that God rules and reigns over all of his creation. Right? This is his kingdom. So, as it says in Psalm 89, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains, because you founded them. This is your kingdom, right, in the broadest of terms. But then as we look at the biblical narrative in human history, how God has exercised his authority over what he owns has been different. Now, there's a particular manifestation of his kingdom that we call the theocratic kingdom, where he ruled and reigned on earth through a human nation of Israel. That's the bulk of what we see in the Old Testament. Uh, illustration of this is Exodus chapter 19. Speaking to Israel, he said, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that is the Mosaic covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, I'm going to set you apart as a unique nation to have a unique relationship with me, and I'm going to exercise my authority through you, and you will be priests, that is, you will be the nation that brings my blessings to all other nations, so it's going to be a, an earthly geographic, political, spiritual kingdom. It's a theocratic manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. God as the ultimate king ruling and reigning through his people on earth. But as we said earlier, uh, Israel ultimately disobeyed God and because of their disobedience, they lost the, the theocratic kingdom and they were exiled, brought back into the land, but still really not exercising their authority because they were under Roman rule. And then uh, Jesus appeared, and this is what he said, Matthew 4. He said, from that time, Jesus began to preach, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or Jesus is preaching a, a gospel or good news of the kingdom because anywhere that God is, the kingdom is present, and Jesus is God in human flesh. And so he's saying, the kingdom of heaven is near you, and it's coming to you because the king is with you. And so Jesus presented himself as the king to Israel. That really comes through as you read the gospel of Matthew, Jesus presenting himself as, as king. But they rejected Jesus. And if you look at the, the arc of the narrative in Matthew chapter, uh, the book of Matthew, when you hit Matthew chapter 11, Jesus offers himself, says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That is, I will give you the blessings. Right? Take my yoke upon me, learn from me. I'm, I'm the king. Matthew chapter 12, you have this climactic moment where they reject Jesus. They reject all of his miracles. They say, you're possessed by the devil. And from that point in time, Jesus no longer offers them the kingdom of heaven. Instead, he says, you know, I want to talk to you about the mystery form of the kingdom. The kingdom's not going to look like you thought it was going to look like. It's not going to be geographic. It's not going to be political. It's not even going to be, in a sense, really that earthly. It's going to be very very much spiritual. It's a, it's a mystery. So Matthew chapter 13, Jesus only begins to speak in parables to the peoples. And he says this to his disciples, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. His disciples go, what are you talking about? We're, we're expecting uh, military and politically says, now think leaven. Uh, think a mustard seed. Think small, kind of hidden, slowly growing, and eventually expanding. 
that's what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like in its next form. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 and 3, that's the church. And that's a really good reminder for us that it's, the church is not uh, geographic, right? It's not rooted in one place or even in one nation. Um, in fact, the barrier of the dividing wall has been torn down. So the mystery of the church is men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation come not through Israel, but we come directly to Jesus Christ, right? He is our advocate before the Father. And so we're from tribes and tongues and people and nations. We're geographically dispersed. We're not political and we're not uh, really, we don't exercise our authority through the power structures of the earth. Instead, we exercise it as our lives are transformed by Jesus and we, we influence one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a mystery form of the kingdom. That said, there will be a future geographic political form of the kingdom when Jesus returns in power. When Jesus returns in power and in might. So where are we? Well, we are studying uh, the return of Jesus now to establish that new form of the kingdom, the millennial form of the kingdom that is earthly. It's from Jerusalem. It's geographic. It's ethnic. It's Jewish and Gentile, right, coming together. And it is for a thousand years, Christ reigning physically on earth in and with and through his people. And what's interesting, though, is you notice, look on our chart, that final kingdom comes in two phases. First is a thousand-year reign of Christ, and then, as we'll study next week, the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal kingdom. And the challenge for the prophets was sometimes they couldn't see the distinction between the thousand-year reign of Christ and the eternal kingdom, just like they couldn't see a distinction between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, they were conflated, right? It's like you're looking at two mountains and you see the two peaks and you don't know, are they this close or are they this close? Are they further distant? You can't actually see, or are they actually one peak and there's just a small valley between? They couldn't see that. And it's hard when you look at the prophets to see what we're studying this morning is the millennial kingdom. Next week, we're going to study the eternal kingdom. So, so we're looking at the millennial kingdom. What will the millennial kingdom be like? I want to take you back to one of our Christmas verses, Micah chapter 5. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Do you see how much theology is packed into those few verses? You have the first coming of Jesus, Bethlehem. He's going to come in Bethlehem. You have the, the eternality of the Son of God. His days are from eternity. And then you also have the second coming where he establishes his kingdom on earth. And we're told in Revelation that first form of the kingdom will last for a thousand years. So turn back with me now to Revelation chapter 20. And let's read in verse 4. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. 
And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests to God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So what we see is that our role will be to rule and reign with Jesus. So those who've been martyred during the tribulation period, they're resurrected, and they reign with Christ. We who are the church, we came with Christ in his second coming. We have been resurrected and glorified. We will reign with Christ. And then there will be Old Testament saints who believed in God's promises. They will be resurrected. And the point is, those who rule and reign with Christ are those who have experienced what John describes as the first resurrection. And the first resurrection, not simply meaning first in sequence, but first in value, the first resurrection is the Jesus resurrection. Jesus was the first fruits. He was raised from the dead, never to die again. And he was glorified. He was given an, a new body that would be appropriate for the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and new earth. And those who believe in Jesus also experience that first resurrection, that qualitative resurrection that causes them to never be touched by the second death. The first death is physical death. The second death is permanent separation from God. If you believed in Jesus, you will be resurrected. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If we have time next week, we'll talk a little bit about the resurrection body, incorruptible, cannot be defiled, no, no more disease or sickness or anything like that. That's the body that we, we experience, and we can, never once, we can never again after that point ever fear any separation from God. The second death cannot touch us. We're told that those who are, are the ones who come back and they rule and they reign with Jesus for a thousand years. Now, what will that rule and reign look like? I want to read to you a few verses here, first from Isaiah chapter 11 and then from the book of Amos. And the prophet writes, a shoot will grow out of Jesse's rootstock. A bud will sprout from his roots. Okay, that is Jesse was the father of David, right? So he's referring to Davidic covenant there. The Lord's spirit will rest on him, a spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom, a spirit that provides the ability to execute plans, a spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. He will take delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by mere appearances or make decisions on the basis of hearsay. He will treat the poor fairly and make right decisions for the downtrodden of the earth. That is, his rule and his reign will be a rule and reign of perfect justice. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and order the wicked to be executed. Justice will be like a belt around his waist. Integrity will be a belt around his hips. A wolf will reside with a lamb and a leopard will lie down with a young goat. An ox and a young lion will graze together as a small child leads them along. A cow and a bear will graze together. Their, will, their young will lie down together. A lion like an ox will eat straw. A baby will play over the hole of a snake over the nest of a serpent, an infant will put his hand. That is, there will be harmony in God's creation. Okay, all things will be in harmony with one another again. They will no longer injure or destroy on my entire royal mountain, for there will be universal submission to the Lord's sovereignty just as the waters completely cover the sea. Now listen to Amos' description. Be sure of this, the time is coming, says the Lord, when the plowman will catch up to the reaper and the one who stomps the grapes will overtake the planter. What's he saying? He's saying there's gonna be so much physical and material abundance upon the earth that 
when it's time to plant again, they're still gonna be harvesting because the harvest is gonna be so incredibly rich. Juice will run down the slopes. It will flow down all of the hillsides. I mean, it sounds messy, but it's gonna be awesome, right? Uh, I will bring back my people, Israel. They will rebuild the cities lying in rubble and settle down. They will plant vineyards and drink the wine they produce. That is, they're not gonna be threatened by their enemies anymore. It's not like they're gonna plant and then be exiled or attacked. They will grow orchards and eat the fruit they produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. That is, the millennial kingdom will be this time of incredible physical and material abundance, harmony in all of our relationships with one another and with the earth and with God as Jesus rules perfectly over the earth. Thousand years, Jesus ruling and reigning, that is, fulfilling all of God's promises. But at the end of the thousand years, he releases Satan from his holding place. And he allows him to lead a rebellion. I want you to read with me in chapter 20 and verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. That is the abyss that is part of Hades or Sheol. We'll talk about it in just a moment. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for, the, for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that is Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So, Jesus allows Satan to be released, and we're told there's a battle, and there's a reference here to Gog and Magog. That's a, an allusion to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, some people think that this is actually a fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39, where God's people are, are attacked. That's possible. Others think that this uh, Gog and Magog battle actually happens at the very uh, beginning of the tribulation period when Israel is at peace. I'm not sure when Gog and Magog happens. I think the illusion means at least that God's people are utterly surrounded and unless God intervenes, they will be destroyed. They're surrounded. And God steps in and speaks. And all of his enemies are immediately destroyed. Now the question is this. At the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is released how is he able to raise up an army to rebel against God? Where do these people come from? Has that thought ever crossed your mind? Um, it doesn't actually tell us in the text, so I'm going to tell you a deduction. This is how, this is how I put things together. Um, again, I can't point, it, point to chapter and verse, but there are people, there are humans on earth during the millennial kingdom who apparently are not believers and they turn and follow Satan. So they've been living under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, but they haven't been able to openly declare their rebellion against him because rebellion is immediately put down. So apparently what has happened is, remember at the end of the tribulation period, there are some who survive the tribulation period, probably believers who survive it. Many are martyred, but some survive. They go into the tribulation as followers of Jesus, but not glorified, and they probably continue to have children, and some of their children believe and some do not believe. But there are people, there are men and women, there are humans on earth, not glorified, who at this point in time, they reject Jesus and they follow Satan. Right? That's apparently what happens. I, that's the only way I can put this together. Now, 
why? why? Why would God allow Satan to be released at this point in time? I think there are a couple reasons. I'm sure that, again, we're all going to be surprised and we're all going to learn a lot of things, but there are a couple observations I would make. One is that um, the fact that there are people who've lived under the rule and perfect rule and reign of Jesus for, for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, they've experienced the reign of Christ, and then at the first opportunity rebel against him, shows that there's something really dark and broken inside the human heart. Because, uh, remember, there are three sources of temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? And the world order is set right. Jesus is ruling and reigning. The devil is gone. He's locked up. But for some, the flesh remains. That's human depravity. Uh, I don't know if, if they still make kids in school read this, but when I was growing up, everybody had to read Lord of the Flies. Anybody read Lord of the Flies? Okay. Still making you read that, apparently. Um, which is amazing, because it's really a very dark book. But it is a book about... Depravity, set shortly after, or actually the setting is, is uh, World War II. There's a group of, of British boys who are like the highest of society, really, really well-educated, wealthy boys, and they're, they're, um, they get stranded on, a, on an island, and they begin to try and set up uh, self-governance, but their self-governance quick, quickly degenerates, and they become tyrannical and even violent and, and genuinely, genuinely evil. And, you know, and then they're, they're rescued. And there's such disappointment, right? Because um, we're British. We're, we're the best of the best. And that's, that's really the condition of the human heart. And so this, this justifies God's judgment of humanity. That there is something rooted deeply in humanity that apart from the work of the Spirit coming in and grabbing hold of our hearts, we're going to choose to live in rebellion against God. And that's what happens is God now steps in. And this is the point of, of final judgment. Verse 10 says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence heaven and earth fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So I want to make some distinctions here. Um, there, there are different places you see in different groups of people in this section. So let me, let me untether this a little bit. Uh, the lake of fire is another way of describing hell. Okay, hell's, hell's the permanent place of judgment. Uh, hell is a translation of a Greek word, Gehenna. So track me. And Gehenna is a translation of a Hebrew word, or two words, Gai Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom. Transliterated in Greek, Gehenna. Translated in English, hell. The Valley of Hinnom is a valley just outside of the old city walls in Jerusalem. And in uh, the days of the history of Israel, there was a, a period of time where the Jews were worshiping Molech, the false god Molech, and they would bring their children and they would sacrifice their children. They would burn their children to Molech. And they did it in the Valley of Hinnom. 
And it was such an abomination that later generations say, you know, th this, this land can't be redeemed. We're going to make it into it. We're going to make it into the city dump. And they put all of their trash in there. Everything, they would just throw it over the old city walls and down into that valley. And it became just gross and disgusting. And it smelled. And then when a fire would start, it would burn for days and you couldn't put it out. As that became in Jewish uh, mindset, that, that's a picture of what hell must be like. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, that, that's, that's hell. That's the permanent place of judgment. That's not the same as Hades, which is the Greek word for Sheol, Hebrew Sheol, Greek Hades. Sheol and Hades were the holding place for judgment. Okay, Sheol and Hades were the holding place for judgment. So you'll notice Psalm chapter 89 David writes, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? That is, uh, in the Jewish mindset, biblical mindset, Old Testament, uh, everyone who died went to Sheol or Hades. They went to this holding place. And in Jesus' day, uh, there was a theology that developed that there were two parts to Sheol. There was a part for the righteous and a part for the unrighteous. The part for the righteous was called paradise or Abraham's bosom. The other side was just described as Sheol or Hades, and it was the holding place until you went to the great white throne judgment. So Jesus would say to the thief on the cross, because you have believed, today you will be with me in paradise. Right? But there's no longer a holding place for judgment when Jesus was raised from the dead. All of the punishment for our sins who believe in God have been poured out on Jesus. It's gone. Okay. So now when a believer dies, where do we go? into the presence of the Lord. But Sheol or Hades still exists as a holding place for those who have to go to the great white throne judgment. Okay? Great white throne judgment is for those who don't believe in God. They reject God's rule and reign over their lives. And so you may have noticed in this section, there are different books that are mentioned. There's a singular book and then there are books. The singular book is the book of life. If you believe in Jesus, your name is written in the book of life, and you have eternal life, and you can never lose that life. It's first described in Revelation chapter 13. It's uh, made as a, a promise, a, a reassurance to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The book of life, this is where the, the, the names of those who follow God, who believe in God, are recorded. That's the singular book. But then we're also told in Revelation that books are open, and the books are the books of people's lives. It's their deeds. And they're judged according to the books at the great white throne. That is, lives are evaluated. Notice what he says here again. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death in Hades, or Sheol, gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. That is, there will be relative levels of discipline or punishment for people's sin who reject Jesus. Let me give you one illustration from the Gospels. Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. So Chorazin and Bethsaida were, were both up in Galilee where Jesus performed most of his miracles. So they had a greater level of accountability because they saw Jesus, they saw his miracles, they heard his teaching. And he said, look, if that had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented if they'd had all that information. Consequently, it's going to be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment. That is, there are degrees of accountability and punishment at the great white 
throne judgment. So what we're saying is, and I've been asked this before, so, I mean, will, will Hitler receive a greater punishment? Yes, he will. Absolutely. Uh, also, we're saying that a person could reject God their entire life and be at the very end of their life, literally on their deathbed, and finally realize Jesus is my Savior and believe and receive eternal life because right? that's the grace of God. He has paid the debt for all sins, for all people, for all time. Some learn that sooner, some learn that later, but that offer of salvation is given all the way up until that very point, the ending of life. Now, this is a life that's wasted though because we were designed to live life in communion with God and fellowship with God and love with God and love with one another, living for his honor and his glory. And that's the only way that a life really matters. And so even as believers, you realize our lives also will be evaluated. Okay? Eternal life is an absolutely free gift. Okay, do not mistake me. And I wanna encourage you, if you've never said to Jesus, yes, I know I have sinned. I believe that you remove my debt of sin. Thank you. You say yes to Jesus. Your name is, you discover your name's written in the book of life. You have eternal life. That's a done deal. But as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, do you know your life will also be evaluated? Have you lived well? Have you lived wisely? We are not going to be at the great white throne judgment. We will be at a different judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So do our good deeds earn us eternal life? No, they don't. Do our deeds matter? Yes, they do. Right, well, ha have we lived well? Have we lived wisely? And we better figure out what are the kind of deeds that, that Jesus actually really values. Have you ever thought about that? What, what actually matters? What's going to be evaluated in this day? Because we hit this day, we're going to realize, man, I just had a few year, short years on earth, but now I've got all of eternity. Did I live for eternity or did I live for this moment? What does is, what is Jesus value? What is a life really wisely and well lived? Well, it's a life lived for the things that Jesus also valued, which is fundamentally, it's, it's people. In investing in the lives of people so that they find Jesus and follow Jesus. Whether you do that in your home, with your kids, with your neighbors, in your job, in your school, that's your calling, whatever your job is, and that matters. Now, second element is this, John chapter 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That is, um, I, could, I could stand up here and deliver sermon, deliver sermon after sermon after sermon and do it entirely in my own strength, with my own creativity and intelligence, and for my own honor and glory, and I get before the judgment seat of Christ and goes, that was a waste. But it's not what you see publicly. It's, are you living your life consciously dependent upon the power of God's spirit to do his works that he prepared beforehand through you so that he gets all of the honor and the glory and the credit. And it's not in a sense what you see publicly or what's, what, what people value, but God values the heart. So remember when Jesus was in the temple and he was sitting with his, his disciples and they were watching people make donations and the rich came in and they throw, threw all their coins into that big brass receptacle and it went clang, 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 clang. And everybody stopped and looked and they saw all the wealth that the rich people were putting into that receptacle. And then shortly after that, a, a widow came in and she just dropped in half a penny. And Jesus said, did you see that? And his disciples were like, what? 
Who's the greatest, right? I mean, <laughs> see what? She said, well, she put in more. Well, in God's economy, God doesn't always value what we value. Right? He values the heart. Have you invested in the things that genuinely actually matter? Now, we've covered a lot of ground, right? Uh, Millennial Kingdom, Great White Throne, Judgment Seat of Christ, Hades, Gehenna, Hell. Um, let, me, let me make the application um, really, really practical. Again, uh, two big reasons that we're given the book of Revelation. One is for our comfort. Whatever you're experiencing today and all the struggles and frustrations, this is not the end. But this is not the end of the story. The, the best is yet to come, and it's going to be better by far than anything you can possibly imagine. So I'd like for you to take some time and read through Revelation 20, 21, 22 this week, and just enjoy the future hope we have in Jesus. But the second is that the book of Revelation is given to us for a sense of urgency, because the end is near. I think that the rapture could come at any moment and things could get going, um, or any of us could end our days here on earth today or tomorrow. You don't have any guarantee for the longevity of your life. So are you living well? Are you living wisely? And are you really paying attention to the things that matter eternally around you, specifically uh, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your uh, coworkers, your, your classmates who may not know Jesus Christ, that we're talking about eternity, right? We're talking about death and life. And it really matters how we live in front of them and us having the courage and the, the urgency to get to the gospel with them. So I would like... For, for us to read one verse as we close Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. What the Spirit is doing in the world today is He's calling out to people. He's saying, Come, come, come. And He's doing that through the bride. That's us. And he's saying, tell people to come because eternity is at stake and the time is near and don't miss the moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would live with a sense of, of peace and calm and comfort that even in the midst of our troubles and trials and tribulations, this is not the end of the story. And I pray, Father, that we would also live with this just profound sense of urgency that we have an opportunity during our few short days upon this earth to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and eternal life in him. Father, I pray this week we would be gripped by that. In Christ's name, amen.